All right, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to, um, we're in a, a series, we're, we're, we're teaching through, preaching through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so if you've got your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. And in some ways, a passage like this is an intimidating passage to preach. And I'll tell you why. Because as, as I read it in just a moment, um, it is very likely... Uh, even if you have not been in the church, um, even if Christianity is something that you would say you're not a part of and you're just checking that out or you're new to Christianity, this is a passage that you likely know. It will be familiar to you. And the reason it is is because it is the heart of what we would call the gospel. It's, It's how we enter into this relationship with Jesus, how we are reconciled to God. This is um, kind of the, one of the Mount Everest passages of that. And so, in many ways, as a preacher, there's, it's very intimidating. There, there's no lack of um, what people have preached and what they've written and how they've talked about this for 2,000 years. And so, my, my best um, effort this morning is to be a good tour guide through these 10 verses, the first 10 verses in Ephesians chapter 2. I I want you to see it. I hope that um, you won't just check out because you think, well, I already know this. I I know these. I memorized them in Awana or, or whatever. But that you would see them with eyes that are fresh this morning. I want to read the passage, but before before I do, I want to make two statements. One is that the history of humanity, the whole history of humanity, is littered with both sin and religion. In both of those things, in their own way, sin and religion, that they're the efforts of people to try to fill the emptiness inside of them with something they can produce or something they can do. There's an emptiness inside of them, in in, in all of us, and we want to fill that with something we do. Whether that's sinful or whether that's pious, we're looking for meaning in life. And and what Paul is going to do in these 10 verses is he's going to show us that we are far worse off than we ever thought we were. And that we're far more loved than we would ever hope to dream. So listen to how Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says it this way. And you, you, me, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of his of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray you would help us this morning to hear your word, to read your word, to understand your word. Father, I pray that through your word and by your spirit, you you continue the work of drawing us to your Son and transforming our lives and filling the emptiness that we all feel as the rest of mankind does. That, Father, we we would know your gift of salvation to us. So, Father, we ask this, um, pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, to remind you, so when we started the the letter to the Ephesians, when we started looking at the first week when you you open it up and you begin reading it, it, it's really, it's it's doxology, it's praise, it's Paul begins with this um, hymn, if you will, this uh, uh, creed about all the things that God has done, that God the Father in, in eternity past and God the Son in history past and and the Spirit of God as He mediates the work of the Father and the Son in our personal pasts. All of this, Paul is speaking about the work of God in salvation, the work of God in redemption. And then he he prays. He he prays that, you know, since our eye, the eyes of our hearts have been enlightened, and if you're a believer, the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. You've, your eyes have been opened. Your ears have been opened. And that we see the hope to which we're called and the riches of the glorious inheritance that we've been given, the immeasurable greatness of God's power, the kind of greatness that the power that God raised Jesus from the dead with and seated him at the right hand and gave him rule over every power and dominion now and forever, that power is at work in our lives. And so today, Paul wants to clarify how we are reconciled to God. And he does it. Here's a simple outline for you. He gives us the bad news. And the bad news is worse than we could have imagined. Then he gives us the good news. And the good news is actually greater than we could have ever hoped or dreamed for. And then he tells us, so what now? So what now in our lives? Well, one of the things as you 
listened to that being read and you followed along, um, if you went to a scripture index in a systematic theology, now it's assuming you'd have a systematic theology, but you could you could find one easily, and you can find them online. And it's a book, really, and it, 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 the systematic theology part is it takes um, uh, topics or doctrines in the Bible, and it traces those through the Bible and says, oh, this is what the Bible says about who God is, and this is what the Bible says about who Christ is, and what the Bible says about salvation. And if you heard in this passage, it, it's, a, it's like a a theological reference here, these 10 verses. You go to a systematic theology, you look these verses up, and, and you'll find that it is spoken about in the topic of, of theology proper, which is the study of being and attributes and the work of God. This passage has a lot to say to us about who God is. You would find references in the Christology section, the study of Christ. You would find references in the soteriology section, the study of salvation. You would find references to demonology, the study of Satan and his demons. We're informed about that in these 10 verses. Anthropology, which is the study of man. Um, we're, we're told by Paul, we're, we're given insight into the nature of man. We're also given insight into the nature of sin. You could almost, you could almost teach an entire systematic theology class from these 10 verses. Well, having described all that we have, our spiritual possessions in Christ, what Paul transitions to is our spiritual position in Christ. Well, what God's done from before the foundations of time to what God has done in particular in our lives. He begins with the bad news. He tells us who we were. If you're a believer this morning, Paul begins in the past tense for you. If you're not a believer this morning, this is, this is actually present tense for you. But he says, this is who we were, believer. You, you, you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It, he speaks about our death, the state we were in, our condition, our, our very nature was one of death. We were dead. You know what this does? Paul makes no distinction. He levels the ground here. This is the condition you were in. The condition that I was in. He says at the end of verse 3, as is all the rest of mankind. And immediately we are told a few things. One, there's no room for your work here. There's no classes. Whatever happens... Um, after this, that's good. Anything that takes place after this, that's good. You take no part in it. You, you don't come to Christ and he saves you because of something good in you or something alive in you. No, God saved you as you come to Christ. 
you're dead, you need life. And death means you have a problem that you can do nothing about. He speaks about it dead in, locates it in our trespasses, our sins. It's our, our, our disposition. And our disposition, the, the, the framework of our life, the direction of our life, the way we saw everything was not toward God, it was away from God. The death here, it's not, it's not an annihilation, it's the separation. We were separated from God. One writer said, the most vital part of man's personality, the spirit, is dead to the most important factor of life, which is God. To trespass is to step beyond, to rebel. See it out in, uh, you, know, you drive out in the country, you see somebody's property, first thing you see Right up on the gate, no trespassing. You're not allowed in here. That's what God did at the very beginning. He set up boundaries. This is how humanity is to live in the world that God created. And yet mankind, in a matter of a chapter, trespasses into the boundaries where we were not supposed to go. Sin... When he speaks of sin, he means to miss the mark. It's our failure. Our failure to live up to and in the light of and the reflection of who God is as those who were created in his image. You, you, you failed with regard to God's glory. There is nothing in you that sought God. The, the stains of your life, the stains of your sin, they cannot be washed out by anything that you do. There's never enough good that you can do to wash away the stain that's in your life. Are you, are you getting the picture here of what Paul's saying? It's worse than we thought it was. Charles Dickens opens up a Christmas carol. We, we read it at our house every Christmas. L Leslie's been doing it for, I don't know, over 20 years, over 25 years. And, and he, he opens up the story. The story, you know, the story's about Scrooge. And he's really going to tell the story about a man who, who's walking dead, if you will. He just doesn't know it. So he opens up the story by telling you about a man who's dead. His old partner of seven years, Jacob Marley, died seven years before the story begins. And it's the context there by which he wants you to see Scrooge. He's actually dead as well. He begins it this way. Marley was dead to begin with. And there's no doubt whatever about it. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman and the clerk and the undertaker and the chief mourner. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. And then Dickens masterfully says, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. 
Then he says, but if you'll permit me to repeat emphatically, Marley was as dead as a doornail. And you realize that he set you up so that you'll understand that's exactly the same condition that Scrooge was in. Scrooge just wasn't lying in a coffin six feet in the ground. He was walking dead. See, the Bible tells us that our condition is this. We're lost. We're separated from God. We're blind. We live in darkness. We're dead. We have no ability to respond to God. We're slaves. Slaves to our desires. Slaves to our lusts. Slaves to our thoughts. Slaves to the world system around us. One writer said, we have high ideals and weak wills. Big dreams and small deeds, high hopes and low living. He'll say, we'll look at it next week in verse 12. We were without hope. We were without God. That's us. That's how we came into this deal. Our first breath. This describes our condition. Well, not only who we were, he, he talks about in verses 2 and 3 real quickly the power that we were under. We were, we were under a power. In fact, if you're here this morning or you're online and you're not a believer, this is still true about you. You're under a power, a power in, in which you walk, he says. You once walked. The, the three things, the, the course of the world, the prince of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. When he talks about the course of this world, he, he means an organized system headed by Satan that leaves God out. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. It means everything's off-center. It means we've, we've built the house on a fault line. Everything is degrading around us. This age that we live in, the course of the world, the age that we're in. See, the world was not always fallen. It's not the way it was. It's not the way that it will be. Presently, right now, it is darkness. It's like Lewis writes in Chronicles of Narnia, always winter, never Christmas. And we were products of the age. And we followed the prince of the power of the air. Someone's, someone's behind it all. And that someone is Satan. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And Adam handed him the world through sin. And this sin infects all of us, which means as important as therapy or counseling may be in your life, I don't want to minimize that, but therapy is not the answer. The therapeutic culture that we live in, we, we've, we've replaced recovery 
for regeneration, for being born again, for being made new. This is the human condition Paul begins with. We need to be made new. It's a human condition for which he provides no human solution. And it's a spirit that's at work at the sons of disobedience. The, the, the only grief that we knew was grief over being caught or sorry for the consequences or grief at the mess, you know, that we made and we find ourselves in. But we weren't looking for a savior. We wanted a solution. We just wanted the crisis to go away. Dane Ortland wrote a book that just came out last year. It's called Gentle and Lowly, and we've been reading it on Tuesday mornings at um, the Bible study that I'm a part of. And he said this, and he was speaking about this passage. He said this, we didn't just occasionally slip into the passions of the flesh. We lived in those passions. It was the air we breathed, the What water is to fish, inordinate ugliness of desire was to us. We inhaled rejection of God and we exhaled self-destruction and well-deserved judgment. Beneath our smiles at the grocery store and cheerful greetings to the Mayo men, we were quietly enthroning self and inviscerating our souls of the beauty and dignity and worship for which we were made. Sin is not something we lapsed into. It defined our moment-by-moment existence at the level of deed, word, thought, and yes, even desire. We not only lived in sin, we enjoyed living in sin. We wanted to live in sin. It was our coddled treasure, our golem's ring, our settled delight. In short, we were dead, utterly helpless. It's why shoppers stampede each other in Walmarts on Black Friday. It's why five million people would tune in every week to watch Honey Boo Boo. That's why. If you doubt your depravity, Spurgeon said, look deeply into a mirror and study your eyes. Look into your soul. You'll find it. Well, that's the bad news. And that's where Paul starts. And in fact, that's the reality of the gospel. I I think unless you come to grips with how bad the news is, unless you come to grips with the situation that you are facing, that the utter hopelessness of your condition and that that is spiritual death, you can't fully understand and appreciate can't know the good news that the gospel is. That's who you were. 
That's how you came into the world. And then Paul says in verse 4, but God. Those are the two greatest words in the Bible. So you can preach the whole gospel from six words of this passage. You were, but God, by grace. Interestingly enough, if you, if you were looking grammatically at it, you know, you were, you're a nerd, and you're looking at the grammar of this one long run-on sentence, you'd find there's no subject in the first three verses. The subject is God. That's who he's talking about. Shows up in verse 4, and there's three verbs that, that tells it. God, he, he's going to make us alive. God raises us. He seats us in the heavenlies with Christ. God is the subject that matters. You are the object. She reminded, you know, if you're the subject of your life, you're not at the place of being able to hear the gospel. It's only when you realize you are the helpless, utterly depraved, hopeless object of that phrase, but God. He's a saving God. That's what Paul says. He's rich in mercy. Ortland calls it, he's a billionaire in the currency of mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. God's, God's not prompted by us. He doesn't look at us and see something worth saving. It's an act. It's mysterious. It's sovereign. It's a free act of God's grace by his pleasure. And it happens to us. He, he looks at us. He, he reaches down to us. But God shows up even when we were dead in our trespasses. His love had nothing to do with our loveliness. We bring nothing to the table. It's all of God. He's the saving God, and then he goes on to tell us what God does to save us. He made us alive together with Christ, there in the second half of verse 5. He brought us to life, but breathed spiritual life back into us. We're no longer then separated from him. We can hear him. We can respond to him. And then Paul there just it's like blurts it out. It's what he's getting to, but he can't help himself. He can't contain himself anymore. By grace, you've been saved. It's the motive of salvation. It's not a design, divine assist, you know? It's not like you're running down the court with God and, you know, he's got the ball, he's dribbling, waits for you to get into the inside bounce passes it to you, and you make the layup. That's not how salvation works. It's by grace. The means, we'll find out, is faith. He raised us up with him. Death and resurrection. His, Jesus' death and resurrection is your death and resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was the declaration that sin and death are defeated. The power of death is gone. It's been conquered. You were raised with him. It means you win. You win. The power of sin is gone. And while the 
presence of sin is still in this world, these residual patterns of sin we find in our life because we're not yet glorified, we've not yet been given a new body, our flesh is still wasting away, but we're, we're daily being renewed inwardly. And our position is secure. It's past tense. It's already happened. In other words, there's nothing left for Jesus to do. He's already accomplished and finished it. There's nothing left to do, and certainly not anything left for you to do. And you are secure in what He's done. You can't undo this once it's been done. Portland goes on, he says, God's love's invincible. And right now, you're seated with Christ in heaven. That means that if you are in Christ, you are as eternally invincible as he is. Whatever Christ is freed from, I'm freed from. It can no more hurt me than it can hurt him now in heaven. For God to de-resurrect you, to undo what's been done in salvation, to bring his rich mercy to an end, Jesus Christ himself would have to be sucked down out of heaven and put back in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You're that safe. And the riches of God's mercy, God being rich in mercy, means that the regions in your life and your soul, the deepest shame, the regret... They're not hotels through which divine mercy passes. They're homes in which divine mercy abides. His mercy is not calculating and cautious. It's unrestrained. It's flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. Our haunting shame's not a problem for God. Our sins do not cause His love to diminish. All this means one day when we stand before Him quietly, without hurry, in perfect rest. We will weep with relief. We'll be overwhelmed and undone by the riches of his mercy. Well, he's going to end the passage that we're looking at this morning by telling us why he did it. Why has God done this? Look at verse 7 again. It says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know what that verse says? Why God saved you by grace? So that you will be forever on display. You become the trophy 
of God. You're the recipient of God's grace. You are the trophy of God's grace forever. And if his grace and kindness is immeasurable, then our failures can never outstrip his grace. You remember the scene and Victor Hugo's Les Miserables? Miserables. Jean Valjean, he's the character. He's on the run. He's escaped from prison. He's poor. He's got no place to go. He's knocked on every door. No one will help him. Spends the night on a stone bench. And the next morning, next day, knocks on the door of a small house of a bishop. That little Bishop and his wife, they give him a bed and a meal. They show him grace. In fact, in the movie, Valjean says, I haven't, I haven't slept in 19 years. You think, oh, there's hope there. But the couple goes to bed and Valjean, he wakes up sneaks through the house at night. He begins to steal all the things of value in the home. Has a scuffle with the old man. He knocks him down to the ground and he leaves with his sack of valuables. The morning scene opens up and the elderly man, he's in the garden and his wife is weeping at the table and he says to her, we'll eat with wooden spoons if we have to. I don't want to hear another word of it. Then all of a sudden, the authorities arrive, and they've got Valjean. They've captured him, and the wife, you know, she's crossing herself. The man says, the bishop, Valjean, I'm so glad to see you. You forgot the candlesticks. Hugo is a master of images, by the way. The old man stuffs them in the bag and the cuffs come off and Rajan looks and says, you really letting me go? And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver I've bought your soul, I ransomed you from fear and hatred and now I give you back. Paul says, you will forever be on display. In fact, the point of all human history, all eternity itself is to show what cannot be fully shown, to demonstrate what can't adequately be demonstrated. In the coming age, we will descend ever deeper into God's grace, in kindness, into his heart. We will grow in our understanding, and the more we see it, more it'll be beyond understanding it because it is immeasurable. Well, not only to display you forever in eternity, but also salvation 
is God giving His gift, demonstrating His power. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Paul, he's, he's beating this drum. It's the drum beat. It's the backdrop. You don't see the grace without coming face to face with the despair. It's the gift of God. All of it. It's free to you to receive it. It was costly to God. It came by great sacrifice. I remember working at the Dallas Morning News when I was in seminary. Worked in the middle of the night and um, in a warehouse and such an eclectic cast of characters in the middle of the night in a newspaper warehouse. There's one guy named Rick Weber. Nice guy, kind of wiry, a lot of energy, really bad mullet. And he knew I was a seminary student. He'd like to pick on me and make fun of me here and there, and that was fine. We'd give it to each other back and forth. And... But I remember there was a guy we worked with, he died, and um, the guy we worked with, he didn't have a pastor. And so for some reason, they, his wife asked me if I would do his funeral. It was one of the first funerals I ever did. And so I talked about grace. I talked about the gospel. I, I didn't have any evidence that the guy was a believer, but I, it's okay. It was, the funeral's always a great place to give the gospel. And I remember Rick came back the next day, and he said, I, he said is that what you believe? And I said, yeah, that's what I believe. It's grace. Grace is a gift. It's to be received. So that can't be right. I, I mean, if we don't clean up our life, if, if we don't make our steps to God, if we not get serious about this, if we don't, you know, we don't come to the place of saying, listen, I've got to get right, and we start getting right, there's nothing we can get from God. And I said, no, you got it all backwards, Rick. It begins by coming to face to face with your hopelessness and the fact that you can't do anything to get to God. It is a gift to be received. I remember that morning he was so angry at me. He said, I don't deserve it. I must do something. I think a lot of people feel that way. And that's not the gospel. That's not a gift. It can only be received. Well, quickly, verse 10, and I don't mean to just skip over it. I'll, maybe I'll come back and begin next week there. But he says, you're his workmanship. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship means work of art. It's actually the same word we get poem from. You're a master, 
You're, the, you're, you're a masterpiece. It says you've been created. It's a word of, that's used to describe what only God can do. We don't evolve into Christianity. You don't just get there by chance or circumstance. We are a creation of God in Christ Jesus. When God saves a sinner, He brings you to salvation. A new person is formed. Something that that never existed before comes into being at the instance of salvation. And you realize you created, not only were you created in Christ Jesus, but you created with now a whole whole life to live, a whole purpose and meaning to step into these, these good works. These good works don't save you. But that the natural outflow, it's the blood running through the veins of a heart that's now alive and, and beating. And we can't help but walk in them. You're far worse than you ever thought, that's what Paul would say. But you're far more loved than you can ever imagine. You're the trophy of God's grace, living now alive, walking in Him and with Him. A.W. Tozer talked about John 3.16, which may be the most famous verse in the New Testament. It encapsulates everything Paul has said here in Ephesians chapter 2. But Tozer, who was a preacher and a writer and a pastor, and he wrote this. He says, I've heard that John 3.16 is a favorite preaching text for young preachers. He was older in his life when he said this. He says, but I confess that as far as I can recall, I have never had the courage to preach and prepare a sermon with John 3.16 as my text. I suppose that I've quoted it as many as 15,000 or 20,000 times in prayer and in testimony and in writing and in preaching, but never as a sermon text. So I think my own hesitation to preach from John 3.16 comes down to this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him will not perish but have eternal, everlasting life. He says, I appreciate it so profoundly that I'm frightened by it. I'm overwhelmed by John 3.16 to the point of inadequacy, almost despair. Along with this is my knowledge that if a minister is to try to preach John 3.16, he must be endowed with great sympathy and a genuine love for God and a genuine love for man. So... I approach it. I approach it as one who's filled with great fear and yet great fascination. A 
take off my shoes, my heart shoes at least, as I come to this declaration that God so loved the world. Have you done that this morning? Have you come to the place of being so overwhelmed that God loved you? But God, while you were still dead in your sin, but God. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning you would take a passage that is very familiar. And instead of its familiarity breeding in us a a quick pass by or a familiarity that brings contempt or a familiarity that, that brings the inability for us to hear these words, I pray, Father, you would kindle in us in a fresh way, a heart that is overwhelmed by your love for us. That we be overwhelmed at what it means that you're rich in mercy and kindness and love. the immeasurable greatness of your kindness and love towards us. Father, help us to to be excited about that all over again, overwhelmed, falling on our knees, our heart knees, as Tozer says, and worship you this morning. If there's anybody here that hasn't done that, hasn't, by grace, through faith, received your gift of salvation. Father, would you do that in them this morning? We trust you with what only you can do is to bring dead people to life. And we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.